The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from James 1, 1 through 17. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you uh, this evening. Thanks for, for joining us. If you're new, I want to say a special welcome to you. I hope you give us a chance to meet you, connect with you, answer any questions you have about uh, who we are as a church. We are a brand new church plant uh, on the east side of Charlotte, trying to be a Jesus-centered family uh, on mission with him. That's what we're about. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of being a uh, pastor here. Uh, as Bethany just read for us, we're going to be in James chapter 1, so grab a Bible, get there. We're going to hop around a lot, so I would encourage you to just have uh, either on your phone or there should be some on the ends of the rows. Just grab that. Uh, we're going to be uh, bouncing all around. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, talk about Jesus. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for the fact that you are, as we sang, God, you are holy, holy, holy. There's no one like you. It's not even close. God, you stand on this whole otherness that is hard for our sinful, human, finite minds to even comprehend. And yet in your kindness and in your love, you've chosen to be known, to be loved, and to love. And so we're grateful for that. God, thanks for Jesus that makes any of this possible. God, thanks for his sacrifice on the cross, his life, death, and resurrection. God, would you, as we sang, God, would you let our hearts desire and the reality of our lives be that you make us more and more like him. We love you. Probably sings in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 1, I want to start before we get there tonight with an exercise. So if you're new uh, and you're getting, let me catch you up real quick. We are in week five of a six-week series where we're building out a theology of 
work, where we're talking about our uh, vocations, what we get paid to do, the nine to five, but also for a lot of us, uh, our other forms of work, whether you are a student, whether you are self-employed, an entrepreneur, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, whatever that may be, we are talking about all of our labor and our vocations. And so uh, what I want to do tonight is I want to start out, grab something to write with. So grab uh, that bulletin that you got handed, grab your phone if you're a, a phone note taker, whatever that may be. And as you're grabbing that, I want you to take a second to think about your work. Think about your job. Think about whatever it is that you do that you give time to. Think about all of your, your uh, what you get paid to do. Think about what you don't get paid to do. Think about your vocation, but also think about your survival work. Cooking, cleaning, paying the bills, mowing the lawn, or should, should mow the lawn if you don't. Um, think about all those kind of things. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down your current frustrations with your work. Now, be specific. Don't just write, it's annoying, it's hard. Write why. Maybe you have an overbearing, incompetent boss. Maybe you have a coworker who just won't leave you alone. Maybe you are underpaid and underappreciated. Maybe the hours are crazy and they just keep piling more and more on. Maybe it feels monotonous. Maybe it feels tedious. Maybe you feel like this is not what I'm uh, passionate about or excited about. This is not the career I thought I was going to be in when I was 18. Whatever it may be, take a few minutes, take a few seconds, write down uh, just a handful of your current frustrations with your job, your current frustrations with your work. I'll give you a second. Do that now. All right, keep that list out. We'll, we'll come back to it. But here's my big question for us today that's going to frame up our time. What do we do with our work frustrations? What do we do with our work frustrations? Because we all have them, right? We all have times where we are frustrated at our work, at our vocation, at our job. Let me prove it. Raise your hand if you have ever been frustrated at your job. Whatever your job is, even if you don't work, whatever your job is. Yeah, me too. To which some of you guys are like, you're our pastor. I know. Shocker. We all experience frustrations at our work. We all experience this Genesis 3, the thorns and thistles that we were promised were going to come as a result of sin entering the world. We all experience frustrations, pain, annoyance, suffering at the hands of our work. And so the question for us tonight is, what do we do? What do we do with those frustrations? If this is a hundred percent part of the human experience, what do we do? Do we just live with them? Do we just learn to grin and bear it? Do we just get over it? This is a part of life. Do we keep trying to get around them and maneuver our lives such that we experience less and less and less? What do we do? Well, I want to get into James chapter 1. I think he's going to be really helpful for us in thinking about our frustrations with whatever our work looks like. James 1, like I said, we're going to be hopping around, but we'll start in verse 1. It says this, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let's pause here real quick. Here's James. If you don't know, James is the half-brother of Jesus. And he's writing to the dispersion, Jewish Christians who have been spread out all across the known world at that time because of both religious and government persecution. And he tells them in verse 2, you're going to meet trials of various kinds. Now, it's important to note here that when James says this, he is talking to a group of people actively being targeted 
by both religious and government officials for worshiping Jesus. So when he says trials of various kinds to this church, he's less talking about working too many hours or a frustrating boss, and he's more talking about you might get killed if you worship Christ, okay? So it's a little bit different. It's not a one-for-one with our trials with our job, but I want you to notice, even in the midst of these extreme, killed for your faith, kicked out of your country if you try to follow Jesus type of trials, James still gives them a pretty bold imperative, right? He says in verse two, he says, count it all joy. Hey, when you face this killed for your faith, if you try to follow Christ type of trial, when you face that count it all joy, then how much more for us as we even think about the small trials and sufferings and frustrations with our job, are we to count it all joy as well. And he continues, verse 3. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. All right, so watch this. James connects our trials to the testing of our faith. And specifically, the word he uses for testing is the word you would use for um, trying out the genuineness of something. So if you were to see if this is a, a fake or a counterfeit watch or jewelry or a purse or something like that. It's a similar word. He's saying, hey, you are being tested for genuineness of your faith. Let's see if your faith is actually going to hold up when you're in the midst of the trial. There's a world champion boxer by the name of Mike Tyson. Uh, He's the guy that bit somebody's ear off during a boxing match one time. Uh, And he's famous. Somebody asked him, hey, what's your boxing strategy? And he said, I don't have one. And here's why. He's quoted as saying this, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I think if we were thinking about this correctly, we would say, based on James 1, 1 through 3, everyone thinks their faith is strong until they get punched in the mouth. It's easy to think I'm rooted in Christ, I'm steadfast with the Lord, and James says, all right, when you're pressed, when you're squeezed, when you face trials of various kinds, whatever those trials may be, the genuineness of your faith is being tested. But he continues, it's not in vain, it's not for nothing. Look at what he says. He says, this will produce steadfastness. This idea of steadfastness is the ability to stand firm in life's difficult situations and circumstances. Steadfastness in the scriptures is this internal Holy Spirit-enabled power and strength that can withstand and endure anything that life might bring. So trials, in whatever form they come in, though they're painful and though they're disheartening, can actually accomplish something for our good. They actually produce within us a rootedness, a surety, a steadfastness. Then he continues, verse 4, and he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When James says that phrase, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, he's talking about the idea of spiritual maturity, this abiding in Christ, this being rooted in the love of Jesus such that you are flourishing with God, such that you are flourishing in your relationship to him. In other words, keep playing out the equation. James says trials are going to come, and they're going to test your faith, which is going to lead to steadfastness. And as this happens more and more, it's going to reach the full conclusion, which is Christian maturity. Trials, these testings of your faith, they're going to lead to steadfastness, that when steadfastness has its full effect, are going to lead to Christian maturity. But here's the deal. It's not just that our trials can help us grow as Christians. The Bible would actually argue that trials are necessary in order to grow as Christians. 
in order to grow as fully formed followers of Jesus, which if you are a follower of Christ, hopefully your goal is Christian maturity. In order for that to happen in your life, the Bible would argue you're going to need to be pressed. You're going to need some things to come that are challenging and difficult and hard. Trial is necessary for maturity. After all, we know this, right? Take it out of the Bible. Take it out of Christian language. You need to be pressed in order to grow, right? So let me give you some examples. Uh, If you were to join the military and you were to go to boot camp, right? I don't know much about boot camp. I've never been, but I do know that it's not just living your best life for 12 weeks, right? You're not just showing up, watching whatever you want to watch, eating whatever you want to eat. You go to boot camp, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, and they push into you, right? They hit you. They push and push and push such that they can get the best version of you after the boot camp is over. Let me give you another example. My wife loves to camp, and so she quotes this study that I can never find, but she says happened a few years ago. And she said, hey, researchers, I did it. And I was like, you don't know how to use the internet, but it's fine. And she said, she doesn't. Uh, It's not a burn. She doesn't. Um, She said, hey, researchers found that one of the best things you can do to grow as a family, to bond together as a family is to go camping. And I said, that's a lie. And she said, no, it's true. Because here's why. Camping is an artificial, um, made up temporary hardship. Right? Like you are intentionally putting yourself in the wilderness, not having any fun and hating your life for three days so that it bonds you together. Like literally, she says it's true. I'll give you another example. I'll give you another example. Uh, anybody here work out? Any runners? Any people that lift weights? It's kind of awkward to be like, yeah, me. Um, <laughs> you know, right? How do you get strong? right? You pick up heavy things and you put heavy things back down and then you do it again over and over and over again. If you want to grow as a runner, if you want to run long distances, you have to run, you have to stretch your muscles, you have to stretch your heart and your aerobic capacity. Listen, we understand that growth as a human being, as an individual comes with pressing. Education system, right? One of the things they do in the education system is they teach kids more than they can handle such that they grow, Now, why do we think the Christian life is any different? Right? Like, why do we think, okay, if all of life has one way of working, if all of life means that I get pressed by things and then I grow as an adult, why do I think that the Christian maturity and the Christian life is going to be God just being like pixie dust sanctification, boom, you're like Jesus, and we just float along for the rest of our lives? Surely the Christian life would work the same, right? That we have to have pressings and trials and frustrations and that that's the means by which God would actually grow us. Peter says this. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1. It's a similar passage to James 1 where he says this, in this you rejoice, you count it joy, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result, notice this, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter and James agree God uses our trials to refine us like flame to gold. He uses our trials to sanctify us, to grow us, to mature us. And so this is what James is trying to show us. Trials are tests for your faith, which can lead to steadfastness, which leads to spiritual maturity, which is the goal for all Christians. So count it all joy. So when you have those 50 unread emails in your inbox tomorrow morning, count it all joy. So you have that coworker that just refuses to stop gossiping about you and slandering about you, count it all joy. So when you're passed over for that promotion, or the boss says no to extra vacation time, or says, no, we're actually going to lower your hours, cut your salary, count it all joy. 
It's when you're pressed with the monotony and tediousness of life. Count it all joy. Why? Because trials are a tool in the sovereign and loving hands of God to grow you, to shape you. That's the positive invitation of our trials. Count it all joy leads to deeper maturity in Christ. But the problem is, if you're anything like me and you're a sinner, which we all are, that doesn't always go that way, right? James actually gives us the opposite of what can happen in the midst of our trials. He says, rather than being a test, your trials can actually become a temptation. Let's skip down to verse 13. I promise we'll come back to the rest. This is what James writes. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When you're faced with a trial, James says, hey, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted in the midst of a trial to begin to blame God. You're going to want to say, God is tempting me. He's pushing me towards this. But James says, no, let me be clear. God tests, but he doesn't tempt. He tests, but he doesn't tempt. And so in other words, when you're faced with a trial that is testing your faith, pushing on your faith, a trial, God means to grow you and to stretch your faith and produce steadfastness and maturity within you. James says, it's not on God that you're not responding appropriately. James says, when you're pushed by that trial and you want to lash out, you want to gossip, you want to cut corners, you want to cheat, you want to belittle, you want to do whatever it takes that might be wrong but inappropriate, whatever, James says, that's not on God. That's on you. That's on your sin nature. That's on your flesh. God is a good God. He's trying to grow us in our maturity. It's our sin that keeps making these trials into temptations. Let me me show you what I mean by this. Let me give you a clear example. Um, I asked her permission, so she let me talk about this. Uh, before we moved to Charlotte, Lindsay and I spent three years in Columbia. And while we were there, she worked at a local YMCA running all of the kids and youth programs. So preschool, daycare, after-school care, summer camp, all of that kind of stuff. And it was uh, a pretty hard, tough, lots of hours type of job, early mornings, late nights, all of that, uh, high energy, high pace. But it was especially brutal in the summers because in the summers, she was in charge of summer camp. And summer camp at her YMCA looked like um, her overseeing about 40 18-year-olds. And then those 18-year-olds being in charge of 200 campers and all of those campers having guardians and parents that had lots of opinions. So that's trial, right? Like it was just a lot going on for her at the summer camp. It was early mornings, 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m. It was late nights, 6 p.m., 7 p.m., all of that. And so we moved back to Columbia in May of 2017, and her first uh, day on the job was the first day of summer camp 2017. So here she is, brand new YMCA, brand new staff team, brand new job. She'd been doing something totally different before that when we lived in Kentucky. And she shows up on the job, 5 a.m., ready to go. And it's like the most overwhelming thing she's ever experienced in her life, right? Kids going everywhere. Everybody's looking to her, asking questions. And she's like, I don't know where the bathroom is. Like, I can't tell you our policy on this. I don't know where the bathroom is. And so anyway, that first summer just hit her kind of like a, a Mack truck. Like she just wasn't ready for it, and she self-admittedly just didn't handle it well. There was a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness. She would lash out a lot at her staff, at her parents. There was a lot of just self-deprecation, a lot of why am I not good at this? Why am I not doing better? All of these 
kinds of things. Well, that summer camp ended, and she knew that I have nine months, and summer camp is coming back. And so she spent those nine months really doing a deep soul work with the Lord, trying to ask the questions of, okay, God, what are you doing? Like, why am I here? Why am I at this job? Why am I in this position? Who are these people, these campers, these parents, these staff that you're handing into my life that you want me to steward and, and shape and shepherd and lead and manage and all of that? And when summer camp 2018 rolled around, it was just as hard. It was just as difficult. It was just as long of hours. It was just as many kids. It was just as many frustrating parents. It was just as many annoying staff members who wouldn't do their job, all of that kind of stuff. But her mindset had shifted. She started asking, okay, Lord, what are you doing, not just in this camp, but what are you doing in me through the trials of this camp? What do you want to work in my soul through this pressing and this shaping and this molding that you're trying to do in the frustrations and trials of my job? Listen, same trial different outcome. Same trial, different outcome. So James gives us these two different equations. He says your trial at your job can be a test that leads to steadfastness, that leads to maturity, or your trial can become a temptation that when it matches with your sinful desire becomes sin, which when sin gives birth to death. Same trial, different outcomes. A test that leads to steadfastness, that leads to maturity, or a temptation that leads to sin that leads to death. In other words, let me put it more plainly, your trials can either serve you or they can destroy you. It's your options. Your trials can either serve you or they can destroy you. And that's true of all of life, but that's also true of your work. So look back at your list. Look back at the list that you wrote down earlier, your work frustrations that you currently have right now. Are these going to serve you or are these going to destroy you? Now, a lot of us, we let our trials and frustrations at work destroy us. So for some of us, we become disillusioned, we become discouraged, right? We're just frustrated, and so we just kind of give up. We just kind of do the bare minimum, whatever I do, need to do to get by. I stop trying to want to achieve. I stop having godly ambition like we talked about last week. I stop trying to go for it with my coworkers, trying to live on mission, trying to serve, trying to be a good employee, whatever it may be. We just kind of pull up and give out. Sometimes people become entitled, Right? They work so hard, I've done so much, I've, I've gotten so much burden, and people have yelled at me, and I've done all this suffering and all this trial, and I'm just kind of over the trial, and so I'm going to do whatever I need to do to set my life up. I'm going to cut corners, I'm going to get around it, whatever I need to do, because I've done the suffering thing, I've done the trial thing, and I'm over that. For others of us, they destroy us by us just trying to take control, force the issue. I don't like what's in front of me, so I'm just going to make it happen. I'm just going to bully my way through. We become dishonest, we overwork, we become controlling and overbearing to those around us. And for others of us, we just run. That job had a lot of trials, so I'm going to go to this job. That job has a lot of trials, I'm going to go to this job. That city and that job had a lot of trials, I'm going to go to this city and this job. And we bounce and we bounce and we bounce and we don't ever put down roots. Our frustrations can destroy us or they can serve us. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is actually want to work through the rest of James 1, and James is actually going to give us some ways that we can help or have our trials actually serve us rather than destroy us. He gives us actually four things in the text. I think it's going to be helpful. We'll work through them fairly, fairly quickly. Four ways that our trials can serve us and serve our Christian growth and not destroy us. Number one, see trials coming. See trials coming. James says, verse 2 again, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
I mean, it's important, right? He says when, not if, not if trials come, not if your job is frustrating, not if your boss is annoying, not if this happens, not if you suffer, when. James knows we live in a fallen, broken world doing fallen, broken work, cursed work. Work is good. It's a gift from God and it has problems. That's a part of living this side of the garden. I think it's important not to breeze past this and say, yeah, we all know that because in in my experience, my own life and being a pastor, a lot of times our trials hurt more because we fool ourselves into thinking they're not actually going to happen. Where we kind of live with a functional theology, a functional view of life that everything should just be okay, career or otherwise, right? It's supposed to be trial-free, it's supposed to be trouble-free, it's supposed to be suffering-free, pain-free, all of that. And so we believe that if something is hard, then something about it must be wrong. We believe if we find the right job, the right work situation, the right setup, the right whatever, then everything in my life should be good. And so when it's not good because we do broken, cursed work, we don't know how to handle it and we bail. We do this with all of life, right? My friends are annoying. I need better friends. My spouse isn't fulfilling me. I need a different spouse. My kids are going crazy. I need better kids. My church isn't meeting my preferences. I need a new church. And we do this with our jobs, right? The job isn't fulfilling It's not helping. It's frustrating. I need a different job. Somewhere in between my sophomore and junior years of college, I got the chance to work at a church camp. It was a lot of fun, hanging out with middle schoolers and high schoolers, talking about Jesus for 10 weeks. And each week, we would have a new church roll through. And one of the things that I tried to make it a point to do as a 19, 20-year-old is to talk to all the different pastors that would come through the camp. I knew that the Lord was, was calling me into ministry. I wanted to be a pastor of some sort. And so I would just use it to pick their brain and say, hey, like, tell me about being a pastor. Do I want to do this? Do I not? Just trying to ask questions of like, what do you do day in and day out? People don't know what pastors do. And so I was like, what do you do? Uh, And I remember in particular, one guy, I think it was like week five or six, uh, we just got really close throughout the course of the week. And he had been a pastor for about 30 years at that point. And so I was just asking him the same questions. Hey, what do you want to do? Should I consider this? I think the Lord might be leading me to ministry. I don't know. Uh, Can I just ask you questions? And I remember really, um, Specifically, it's something I still use today to encourage myself when I have gnarly days and to encourage others. And he said this, he said, Tim, every job has problems. Every job is cursed. He said, being a pastor is cursed. Being a barber is cursed. Being an engineer is cursed. And he went on to list about four or five different jobs, all of them cursed. And then he finished by saying this. So when you're choosing a career, pray and pick your problems. Pray and pick your problems. Listen, every job you want is going to have problems. Every job you think about, every career you consider is going to have trials. It's going to have problems. So pray and pick your problems. See what the Lord's doing through those problems. Learn to expect them. When, when. See trials coming. Number two, go to God. Number two, go to God. Verse five. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it'll be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. One of our deepest needs in the midst of our trials is wisdom. And wisdom in the scriptures is defined as a God-given and God-centered discernment regarding the practical issues of life. God-given, God-centered discernment. So James encourages us, hey, when you're in the midst of your trials, ask God for wisdom. Pray. God, what are you doing here? 
Like, what, what are you trying to grow in me? What are you trying to shape within me? What are you doing in the midst of this work, frustration, and trial? I don't like my job. I don't like my coworkers. I don't like my boss. I don't like what I do. I don't, my kids are frustrating me. My labor, whatever it may be, is frustrating me. God, what are you trying to teach me? And here's the deal. God's not trying to play a guessing game with you. Like God's not trying to play 20 questions. God's not sitting up there being like, oh, I hope they figure out what I'm trying to do in their lives and how I'm trying to shape them. That's not God. God wants to be known. He wants his, job, his work in your life to be seen and proven. Ask him. It's a great chance for us to serve one another in community. This is why church family is important. Hey, I'm struggling. My work is, is tough right now. I have trials. Will you guys pray with me? Can we seek the Lord together and discern what it is he's doing in my life? Go to God. He gives wisdom. He gives it generously. Number three, kill your comparison. Kill your comparison. Everybody good? Tracking? Cool. Verse nine. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What's going on here? He says, first, let the lowly boast in his exaltation. What does that mean? That they are raised with Christ. That in the kingdom of God, Jesus over and over says that it's the lowly, it's the rejected, and it's the downcast that have value and meaning and worth and significance, that he lifts up the downcast. So James says, let the lowly brother boast that Christ will lift him up. And then he says, let the rich boast in his humiliation. That his life is a vapor, that he can't trust in riches, that his job, his status, his money, his title, it might elevate him on earth, but at the foot of the cross, we're all beggars in need of a savior. In other words, the gospel levels the playing field. James says the gospel levels the playing field, but what can happen, if we're being honest, in our sinful tendencies is that not only do we live through our work trials, but then we start to compare our, our work trials. All right, so here's what happened. Hypothetical example. It's a Tuesday, and you wake up early. You're like, all right, I'm going to get to work early. I'm going to crush it today. And so you show up to the office, I don't know, like 6.30 a.m., 7 a.m. And you're like, let's do it. And the first thing you do is you open your computer and you check your email and there's an urgent email that you missed last night at midnight about how you're behind on a deadline. So you're like, I got to crush it. I got to get this deadline. We're behind. Well, around nine o'clock, your boss comes in to interrupt you and yell at you about said deadline, which he doesn't realize is actually getting in the way of you further meeting the deadline. And so he yells at you and then he leaves. And then at lunch, your coworkers all go out to lunch and they like walk by your office and they're like talking about where they're going to lunch. They don't invite you. Of course not. So you continue on through the afternoon. You do all the tedious, monotonous, boring stuff that you don't want to do. And you're like, here's the deal. I'm leaving at five. We got community group at seven. I'm going to get some dinner with some friends. We're going to go somewhere nice, new restaurant, all that going to be awesome. At 4.30, you get pulled into a meeting that you're not even really supposed to be in, but they insist that you should be in it. And so you go to the 4.30 meeting. It goes all the way till 6.45. And you're like, guys, I have to leave. And so you leave, you go to McDonald's, you eat a double cheeseburger on your way to group. You instantly feel sick because it's McDonald's. You show up to group, you do sermon discussion. You don't really engaged because you're just mad at the day. And then you get to split time where we do men and women. And some guy in your group says, Hey guys, I had a really hard day at work and you're all very caring. And so you say, what's wrong? What's up? And he said, well, I asked my boss for 12 weeks of vacation and he only gave me 10 trial, suffering, pain. And all you want to do in that moment is ask the Lord to resist the urge to choke him out in the middle of the group. Here's the deal. We love to compare our suffering. Right? We love to compare. There's something within our culture that right now just has to be the greatest victim over everybody else. Can I go here for a minute? 
There's something within us that, hey, I know that you suffer. I know that you have a hard job. I know that you really struggle, but like, it's nothing like my suffering. It's nothing like my trial. Yeah, like, I know your boss is bad, but like, I got 10 more stories that are going to one up your bad stories about your boss. We love, it's like we take some amount of pride or arrogance in suffering the most or suffering more than everybody else. It's like we just want to be the one who everyone else says, you know what, my life is hard, but like your life is the worst. And if I can say some things in love, listen to me, your job is probably not the hardest job on earth. It's just probably not. I know what most of you in the room do. It's probably not the hardest job. And here's the deal. If it, even if it is, it doesn't matter. Because you insisting that it's harder than everybody else's job, you insisting that your life is more difficult than everybody else's life is actually keeping you from being able both to see God's purposes in your trials and to actually help love others walking through their trials and suffering as well. So when you're sitting in group and somebody's sharing and you're like, well, not as hard as me, not as bad as my trials, you're actually cutting off the Lord's work in your life and you're not helping the Lord do his work in their life. Kind of push a little further. Parents, let me talk to us for a minute. If you don't know me, I got a kid, so when I say us, I mean us. We're really bad at this. I, I, I love us. I love you. I love the parents in our church. We're really bad at comparative suffering. And listen, I know your kid or your kids are tough. My kid is too. And I'm, I'm sure that your kid... It's difficult. I know that because my kid is difficult. And your kid might factually be more difficult than mine. They might not eat as well. They might not sleep as well. They might throw more toddler tantrums than mine does. They might throw more kid tantrums, whatever. They might be more difficult. I, I get that. And all of us are having a hard time. It's hard. So stop comparing. Stop comparing. And listen to me. When I say all of us are having a hard time, that includes the people in your group that are single and the married couples who don't have kids. It's hard for all of us. Parents don't have exclusive rights to trials. And we can talk like we do, and we can act like we do, because we can get to group, and a single person in our group or a married couple without kids is talking about how it was hard for them to get to group and are talking about how they're struggling or whatever, and you can be like, Psh, wait until you have toddlers. Wait until you have a baby. That's not loving to them, and that's not loving to yourself. Actually cuts off what the Lord is trying to do through the gift of children in your life, and it cuts off what He's trying to do in the season that they're in. And listen, put, to put it frankly, it actually is really and can really hurt our church unity if we do this. It can really be painful to us actually being together because we say all of the time we don't do married with kids groups and single person groups. We do everybody together because we think we need each other and we think we're the family of God when we're together. And so we actually need you as parents and we need people as single and both to say, hey, your suffering is hard, my suffering is hard, let's follow Jesus together because it's hard for all of us. We need each other. And I love you. I'm bad at this too. Number four, look ahead to the crown of life. Look ahead to the crown of life. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's a reward to come at the end of our trials and tribulations. Listen, God's commands are always rooted in God's promises. And so James says, hey, there is a crown of life coming, so hold fast. And I love that beautiful thing. He says, because this is for God, for who, those who God has promised to those who love him. He says, it's a guarantee. God keeps his promises. It's a guarantee. 
That's what we're promised even in Hebrews 10. The author of Hebrews says it this way. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. James says, if you want your trials to serve you, if you want to grow, if you want God to actually use them to mature you in your faith, you got to know that you got to hold on to Christ all the while he's actually the one holding on to you. He's actually the one staying faithful to you, that he keeps us, he holds us. And so we look forward to the crown of life promised to all those who love Jesus, knowing that it's actually Christ who's going to get us there. It's Christ who's going to hold us fast. It's Christ who keeps us secure in his hands. So that's the four. See trials coming. Go to God for wisdom. Kill your comparative suffering. Look ahead to the crown of life. I've already gone too long, but let me close. Verse 16. This is so beautiful and so challenging. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James actually takes it one more step. He doesn't just say trials happen. Are you going to let them serve you? He actually says trials are a gift from God. He says every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from our Heavenly Father. And it's in the same passage. He's connecting the two. He says, hey, God is trying to do something. And so in his kindness, he actually gives us the gift of trials in order to shape us. A few months ago, uh, when Harper turned one, we noticed that there were some gray spots on the front of her teeth, uh, which apparently is a very normal thing, but when you're a new parent, you just freak out about everything. And so we were like, oh no. So I was like, Lindsay, you gotta take her to the dentist because I am weak and you are strong. And so Lindsay took her to the dentist. it's a true story. And uh, she takes her to the dentist. And I don't, if you've never taken a, a one-year-old to the dentist before, it's kind of a weird thing. You sit in the chair, not the kid, and you actually have them sit reverse. So they kind of like sit on your lap facing you. And then you're supposed to help the kid turn. This is what the dentist did for us. Uh, tell me if it's different. Uh, he you actually make... <laughs> You make the kid lean their head back, like you kind of force it, and then the dentist reaches over and, and does all that. And so they go to the dentist's office, and uh, Lindsay sits in the chair, Harper sits facing her, and then Lindsay kind of starts leaning her back, which Harper actually enjoys, like kind of leaning back, it's fun for her. So she was like, this is fun, a game. And the next thing she knows, the dentist is just like, on her teeth. And Lindsay said it was one of the worst days so far as a parent. She said, literally, she's sitting there, and uh, Harper just has this look in her eyes while this dentist strange man is, like, trying to get the gunk off of her teeth. And she said the look in her eyes, she can't talk, she's only 16 months, but she said the look in her eyes was just like, what is going on? She says, she started, it was like a new word at the time, she said she started going, mama, mama. Mama, and it just got louder and louder, like to the point where like, she's got some lungs on her. So she's just like, mama, mama, mama. And she's like, why, like, why aren't you stopping this? I don't like this. What is this? Like, stop doing it. And Lindsay said it took all of her power to remember, no, this is good for you. And this is necessary. And you need this and your teeth need this. And so I have to hold you in the middle of a really frustrating, difficult, scary season because I need this for you. Listen, how many of us are in the midst of our trials right now? In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our frustration, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our hurt, with our work and our lives, and we're screaming, Father, 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 just all the time looking up at God saying, why aren't you doing anything? And he's looking back at us going, I gotta do this for your good. It's hard, 
and it's painful, and you don't like it, and I get that. I know you don't like your job. I know you don't like your boss. I know you don't like your coworkers. I know that it's frustrating. I know that it's monotonous. I know that it's tedious. I know that it just feels like it's pushing on you from every side, but I am more committed to your holiness than your happiness, and so you got to stay put. You have to stay put because I'm doing something and this is good for you. I was reading a quote just this morning. I put it in real quick, last minute, and it just it hit so hard and so I thought we'd all be hit by it together. Uh, Jared Wilson, he says it this way. He says, what if God's plan for you is not success, but drawing you so near to him in your dependence, your disappointment, and your devastation that you become more like Christ? The truth is that the Lord may not be committed to our success. Let that sink in. The truth is the Lord may not be committed to our success, but here's the promise in this. He is committed to his, and because of that, he is committed to us becoming more like his son. God is more committed to your holiness than he is your happiness. And so those very frustrations that you wrote down, look back at your list. This will end. Those very frustrations that you wrote down might be the very thing that God is saying, hey, stay put because I'm doing something. Stay put in the midst of this frustration because I'm doing something. So here's two questions I want you to take with you to group this week. If you're not in a group, get in a group, take them to group. Here's the two questions. Number one, what is God trying to kill that is bad in you through the trial? What is God trying to work out within you? Pride, selfishness, apathy, lack of love for others. What is he trying to kill in you? Second question is the positive. What is God trying to grow in you that is good through the trial? Think about that this week. Pray about that this week as you, as you face these trials, as you face these frustrations in your job and honestly in your life. Think about what is God trying to kill that is bad within me and what is he trying to grow that is good within me? And this week in your groups, you'll be discussing these, talking about it, helping each other discern the wisdom of God. God, what are you trying to kill? What are you trying to get rid of? Uproot that is bad. And what are you trying to grow? Love, patience, kindness, joy, all the things we're going to talk about this fall. Because here's the deal, and this is where we'll we'll close as we take communion and worship together. Our God is in the business of taking hard things and bringing beauty, right? But that's, that's the entire gospel message. God takes bad things, hurtful things, frustrating things, terrible things, and he brings beauty. He brings life, That's what the gospel is. That's what the cross is. That He took the greatest suffering. He took the worst pain, the pain of Jesus on the cross, on our behalf. Jesus, the son of God, who took on flesh, came to earth, lived a perfect life that you and I could not live, and yet died the death that us and our sins deserved. And God took that, the most horrific, brutal act in history, and brought life. Because three days later, Jesus got up out of the grave defeating Satan, sin, and death. Now all who trust in him, all who put their faith in him, will have life forever with God. That's what our God does. He takes the bad. He brings life. That's what we celebrate every Sunday when we take communion. So you got a little cup on your chair, has a little wafer, which represents the body of Christ, which was given for you on the cross. And it has juice, which represents the blood of Christ. And and I would encourage you, uh, don't take this lightly. I know we do it every Sunday. I know it's easy to be like, this is what I do. I crinkle it and it sounds weird. And then I take it and I look around awkwardly while I drink this juice that doesn't taste good. It's not a light thing. It's not a light thing. This is us as the people of God remembering and celebrating Jesus, the gospel, the message that without this, without the body and blood of Christ shed on our behalf, what we celebrate every single Sunday, and remember every single Sunday, without this, we have nothing. Jesus doesn't die. Jesus doesn't rise again. We don't have life with God now or forever. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus dies, takes our sin, 
rises again. So we're about to take communion. If you're not a Christian, we'd invite you not to take communion, not because we don't like you or want to withhold from you, but rather uh, you'd be saying that this is true about you when it's just not yet. Rather than take communion, we actually invite you to take Christ, to believe in Jesus, to believe that his sacrifice on the cross can make you right with God. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'll be down front afterward. Let me pray, and we're going to worship, sing, all that kind of stuff. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for Jesus. God, thank you for the fact that we have trials. God, and I know that in the midst of our frustrations, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of our annoyance, in the midst of our, why won't this just stop? God, I know it's really hard to see or to even care about what you're doing. And I confess my own desire in the moments of trial to just be like, Lord, just take it away. We'll figure it out later. Oh, but I, I want to praise you, God, that even when I don't believe it, that it's good that you are more committed to my holiness than you are my happiness. So sometimes that's going to mean some trials. Sometimes it's going to mean some pressing, some frustration, some uncertainty, God. And so I pray that you would have me and all of us have eyes to see that you are doing something in our midst, that you're trying to grow us, you're trying to shape us, you're trying to make us steadfast people that don't fluctuate or go back and forth or, or change what we care about based on the seasons of our culture or the seasons of our life, but are rooted and established in what is lasting and eternal, namely the love of Christ, his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf, God. And so we need you for this. Help us. Help us as we think about our work. Help us to see, have wisdom, God. You say if we ask and believe that you'll give us wisdom, and so I'm asking for wisdom. How would you give us wisdom as a church to know what it is you're doing? God, we love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.